You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to you all to the House of Literature. My name is Andreas Delset. I'm the Artistic Director at the House, and I'm really happy and honored uh, not only to welcome tonight's guest of honor uh, for this event, but also to open our autumn program here at the House of Literature. Uh, some of you perhaps heard about Valeria Luiselli from this summer's article series in Morgenbladet, and uh, where they discussed and examined the re relevance of literature today. Here, Luiselli said, pointed out, we need fiction to remind us of how far from normal reality is. And I couldn't agree more. That being said, if anyone doubts the relevance of literature, my best way of replying would be to say that you should read Valeria Luiselli. For about a week or so, we have also been fortunate enough to be able to do so in Norwegian, as Luiselli's first novel, Los In... Uh, I'm wondering if it's Los Ingravidos or Los Ingravidos? Ingravidos. Uh, has been uh, come available in Norwegian, so that I can say that it's now called Die Vektløse, translated by Ingrid Melfall Halfredal. It is one of the most surprising and thought-provoking books I've read in a very long time. And it is a book that has made the critics bring out superlatives of the kind that always make the writer embarrassed uh, if you start reading some of them, because they are so good. Faces in the Crowd, which is the English title of the novel, signals the arrival of an exciting voice in the new wave of Latin American writers, one critic said, masterly and completely original author, a formidable talent, her vision and language is precise, and the power of her intellect apparent on every page. That's where she become embarrassed, I think. But uh, I couldn't agree more to that either. I'm te I am tempted uh, myself to use the ana an analogy um, or an image used by Siri Hustvedt when she uh, was asked to define what good literature is. She said in her lecture that she gave here last year at the House of Literature that it's a bit like orange juice on your oatmeal porridge. It pulls you out of the ordinary and makes you see the world in a new and ex unexpected ways. That is how Louis Ellis' uh, 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 writing is to me. The, she is the author of four books altogether, including one other novel, as well as an essay collection and the non-fiction title Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions, which, among other things, has been called the first must-read book of the Trump era. We can firmly establish that Luiselli is a voice to, re be, to reckon with, and to talk with her tonight about uh, Die Vektløse and her authorship, we are very too happy to have Maria Horve, who is the, author, uh, no, sorry, the editor of Windue, Please give them a warm welcome. Thank you, Andreas, and uh, welcome to Literaturhuse and to Valeria Luiselli. Thank I'm you. very happy to be sitting here with you tonight. Um, so uh, I'm sure you already understood, but for those of you that came out here tonight to laugh at my Horrendous Spanish. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy to disappoint you. Uh, we will be talking in English. Um, and um, yeah, as Andrea said, uh, the main topic for our conversation will be Miss um, Luiselli's fiction. Um, I'm sure plenty of you here tonight are also very interested in her uh, non-fiction writing. So I highly recommend tomorrow uh, tomorrow's event um, in which uh, Luiselli will speak to. Uh, Tedri Cole and Nadifa Mohammed um, about the topic of refugees and our failure to deal with the current situation in a humane uh, way. But tonight, uh, our main interest lies in Louis Ellis' fiction, especially her debut novel, Facing the Crowd, uh, which is uh, just released in Norwegian translation, as Andreas um, so rightly said. And, um, it's a novel. Put, uh, it's a novel that is set in in three cities: Mexico City, New York City, and Philadelphia. City? No. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and um, just uh, to start start us off, I've asked uh, Valeria to read uh, some excerpts from uh, from the English English translation uh, of the of the novel. So perhaps you will. Uh, 
you will uh, read now. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much for being here. Thanks all of you. It's so beautiful outside. We could move outside if, if you want. <laughs> I don't have a problem. Um, I must say that I wrote this novel mm, more than 10 years ago, and I haven't read out loud from it in at least seven years or so. So um, it's going to be interesting to, to read again. <clears throat> uh, just maybe I should tell you that um, the, the, the voice that you're going to hear is, is one of the two voices in the novel. There are, there are two voices, one, one woman narrator who is living in Mexico City, but also re recounting, remembering her past in New York working as a translator or as an assistant, really, uh, in, a, in a publishing house. And the other voice is Gilberto Owen, the completely unknown Mexican poet. Uh, if one of you know him, you can come join us for dinner <laughs> later. Um, and this, so this is just the beginning of the novel, and it shifts from present to past. The boy wakes me up. Do you know where mosquitoes come from, Mama? Where? From the shower. During the day, they're inside the shower, and at night, they bite us. It all began in another city and another life. That's why I can't write this story the way I would like to, as if I were still there, still just only that other person. I find it difficult to talk about streets and faces as if I saw them every day. I can't find the correct tenses. I was young, had strong, slim legs. I would have liked to start the way Hemingway's immovable feast ends. In that city, lived, I lived in an almost empty apartment. I slept very little. I ate badly, without much variety. I had a simple life, a routine. I worked as a reader and translator in a small publishing house dedicated to rescuing foreign germs. Sorry, foreign gems. <laughs> <laughs> This happens to me often. Uh, <laughs> I'm really paranoid in the Trump era. <laughs> Again. I worked as a reader and translator in a small publishing house dedicated to rescuing foreign gens. <laughs> Nobody bought them, though, because in such an insular culture, translation is treated with suspicion. But I like my work, and I believe that for a time I did it well. On Thursdays and Fridays, I did research in libraries, but the first part of the week was reserved for the office. It was a pleasant, comfortable place, and what's more, I was allowed to smoke there. Every Monday, I arrived early, full of enthusiasm, carrying a paper cup brimming with coffee. I would say, good morning to Mimi, the secretary, and then to the chief editor, who was the only editor, and therefore the chief. His name was White. I would sit down at my desk, roll a cigarette of Virginia tobacco, and work late into the night. In this house lived two adults, a baby girl and a little boy. We call him the boy now because although he's older than his sister, he insists that he's not properly big yet. And he's right, he's older, but he's still small. He's neither the big boy nor the little boy, so he's just the boy. A few days ago, my husband stepped on a dinosaur when he was coming downstairs and there was a cataclysm. Tears screaming, the dinosaur was shattered beyond repair. Now my T-Rex really has been extincted, sobbed the boy. Sometimes we feel like two paranoid Gullivers, permanently walking on tiptoe so as to not wake anyone up, not to step on anything important and fragile. In winter, there were windstorms. But I used to wear miniskirts because I was young. I wrote letters to my acquaintances, telling them about my rambles, describing my legs swathed in gray tights, my body wrapped in a red coat with deep pockets. I wrote letters about the cold wind that caressed those legs, compared the freezing air to the bristle of a badly shaved chin, as if the air and a pair of gray legs walking along streets were literary material. When a person has lived alone for a long time, the only way to confirm that they still exist is to express activities and things in an easily shared syntax. This face, 
these bones that walk, this mouth, this hand that writes. Now I write at night, when the two children are asleep and it's acceptable to smoke, drink, and let drafts in. Before I used to write all the time at any hour because my body belonged to me. My legs were long, strong, and slim. It was right to offer them, to whomever, to writing. In that apartment, there were only five pieces of furniture. Bed, kitchen table, bookcase, desk, and chair. In fact, the desk, the chair, and the bookcase came later. When I moved in, I found only a bed and a folding aluminum table. There was also a bathtub. But I don't know if that counts as furniture. Little by little, the space began to fill up, although always with temporary objects. The books from the library spent the weekends piled high by the bed and disappeared the following Monday when I took them to the office to write reports on them. A silent novel, so as to not wake the children. Sometimes I bought wine, although the bottle didn't last a single sitting. The bread, lettuce, cheese, whiskey and coffee in that order lasted a bit longer and a little longer than those five things together, the oil and soy sauce. But the pens and lighters, for example, came and went like headstrong teenagers determined to demonstrate their complete autonomy. I knew it wasn't, good, it wasn't a good idea to place the least trust in household objects. As soon as we become accustomed to the silent presence of a thing, it gets broken or disappears. My ties to the people around me were also marked by those two modes of impermanence, breaking up, disappearing. All that has survived from that period are the echoes of certain conversations, a handful of recurrent ideas, poems I liked and read over and over until I had them off by heart. Everything, el everything else is a later elaboration. It's not possible for my memories of that life to have more substance. They are scaffolding, structures, empty houses. In this big house, I don't have a place to write. On my work table, there are nappies, toy cars, transformers, bibs, rattles, things I still can't figure out. Tiny objects take up all the space. I cross the living room and sit on the sofa with my computer on my lap. The boy comes in. What are you doing, Mama? Writing. Writing just a book, Mama. Just writing. Novels need a sustained breath. That's what novelists want. No one knows exactly what it means, but they all say a sustained breath. I have a baby and a boy. They don't let me breathe. Everything I write is, or has to be, in short bursts. I'm short of breath. Thank you. Thank you. I come across as a really bad mother. No? <laughs> I think uh, as a very relatable mother. I um, so what this excerpt set up wonderfully, among other things, is, is the way you shift between the different... Uh, from the past uh, in New York City. Although you don't name the city before later on in the book it's yeah. just uh, the city but it's yeah. uh, but new york has this aura of being the city yeah anyway so um mm. and and the and the present uh, where uh, the narrator is a, is a still young writer struggling to write what appears to be the novel that we are reading uh, mm. in fact um and what happens in, in, in the past uh, tense is that uh, the narrator, uh, through her trips to the library, she gets increasingly interested and fascinated and almost obsessed by this uh, pretty uh, liminal Mexican modernist poet, uh, mm -hmm. Gilberto Owens. Um, so uh, having, having set up uh, some of the different strands and, and, and the way you lay your book, could you just tell us briefly um, how did this book come to life? It's your first novel. It's the first, uh, yeah, your first piece of, of, of that kind of fiction. How did yeah. you write it? Well, first, just to go back to something you were saying about New York, you know, 
uh, I hated the idea of writing uh, about New York, and it, it almost makes you feel like a novel that starts by like immediately placing you in New York is, I don't know, it's almost the scene of like you know, the taxi cabs, mm. the high rises, mm. and I was really struggling to 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 immediately embed my narrative within such an like overlaid. Um, scale, like landscape, cityscape, soundscape. It's a cliche. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's yeah. a great cliche, right? So I was like, how, how do I do this without, without falling into this so easily? So I don't, I, I don't know the first time that the word New York comes up in the book, mm, but I think it's probably, maybe, maybe my translator knows, but I think it's very, very late into the book. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's only 100-something pages, but maybe mm. page 80 or something, or maybe, maybe earlier. Um, so how, how did this book come about? Um, I have no idea. Like, fir first books come, come about, like, in, in almost as if by miracle. You never know that you're really writing them until all of a sudden you're maybe almost finished. But I can tell you that, that I was interested in several things. On the one hand, I had just arrived in New York in 2008 when the economic crash was about to happen. There was already a feeling of like, something is really wrong here. Um, Obama had been elected, so the, on the other hand, there was this kind of um, very dangerous feeling that we had arrived in this, to this point of like, uh, this like nice, sunny plateau of mm. democracy. We're good now. Yeah, that kind of, mm. we're good now, that turned out to be so dangerous, no? mm. because... Uh, people stopped participating and being vigilant of, of what was actually going on in, in, in that administration too, but we can talk about that tomorrow. <laughs> she said, we're not talking about politics today. Okay, fine. Um, and so, anyway, it was, it was that New York to which I had arrived, 2008, and I had grown up reading a lot of the writers of the Harlem Renaissance. When I say grown up in high school, um, I, had, I had a wonderful teacher who knew a lot about the Harlem Renaissance, and that was the body of work that informed me. So when I arrived in Harlem uh, for the first time in, in that year, 2008, I, I had um, a similar experience to the one, to one that Langston Hughes describes, and I'm going to forget the quote now, and you might remember. It's, um, he says that he's always, he, he'd always been in love with Harlem much before arriving there. He, he says it in much better words. But that, that kind of happened to me too. I already knew Harlem when I arrived to live there. Um, and I knew it through something that I guess all of you have experienced with literature, which is this kind of borrowed memory. Um, like when we, we read uh, about cities to which we've never been, that there, there's a familiarity. You know? there's, it's memories of our own. Um, and I arrived to that space. And at the same time, I started reading there some of the writers that I hadn't read before, Owen was one of them, that had documented their experiences in Harlem during the 20s, but as foreigners. Um, not Langston Hughes, not Nella Larson, not, not, not some of the ones I talk about in the book, but Owen in particular, this Mexican who arrived in, in, in Harlem in the 1920s, and lived a very peculiar existence there because he was largely invisible, right? Um, this is something that to, to this day, to a degree, continues to be the case. You know, the, the place of the Latin American or the Hispanic in the U.S. is, is always kind of marginal, even though we are so many, you know, and we're reproducing more and more. You know? I, think, <laughs> I think people are scared you know, to the degree to which um, us Latinos reproduce. But although, although it's a country with 60 million Hispanic speakers, uh, 60 million, that means that it's the second largest... Spanish-speaking country in the world, only second to, to Mexico and larger than Spain. But it doesn't really recognize itself as a country that is Hispanic. And it's li the, the literature of the Americas, of the rest of the Americas, are not... I mean, now they are. Now, 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 it, now it kind of changed. After the, there was a period in the boom where it changed and then a post-Bolaño fever that also brought in a lot of new voices. Curiously, this novel plays on that, but before it happened. Um, it, this novel is much more cynical and pessimistic than actually what happened with Latin American literature post-Bolaño. We actually, a lot of us started getting translated, and now it's a kind of common thing to, to read 
Latin Americans in English, but it wasn't when I was writing this. And, mm. I, and I was, it, it was something that, that frustrated me and that I was denouncing somehow. Denouncing not directly, but through the story of this poet, uh, Gilberto Owen, who was largely invisible in, in, in the Harlem to which he arrived. Mm. So there was that motivation. Like a more, I think for, in my case, a lot, many times my motivation is political discomfort or cultural uh, indignation or sometimes even rage, but that has to be kind of alchemized into something more luminous and playful and satirical. Or, and, I think, and I think the impulse for this novel was that particular discomfort, mm. understanding like the invisibility of, of, of Latin Americans and Hispanics in, in New York. Um, and the funny thing is, of course, that this invisible character is seen by uh, the narrator, uh, the female narrator of the of the novel, uh, both as in she discovers him in the library and wants to uh, make his work known in English, um, and also she actually uh, sees him. But uh, we'll get more into that uh, later. There's a scene um, from a rooftop um, where very early on, pretty early on in the book. Uh, where she kind of it gets in that she latches on to this writer in Gilberto Owens. Yeah. Uh, could you, uh, uh, would you just uh, paraphrase that scene for us? Because it's such a beautiful scene of uh, the narrator on the rooftop in Harlem. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's something that, that actually I did or happened to me. I, I will, I will, I, I've always been very um, adept to looking for rooftops. No, wherever wherever I go, I come from a city that has like a, a like a, a, a la like an invisible layer, which is the layer of rooftops. Uh, I don't know if you uh, any of you have been to Mexico City, but but it's not a very high city. Most most uh, buildings are maybe four stories, five stories high in the center of town, and that and and there is a very active life in the rooftops. There's, f first of all, a, a whole strata, like an, a socio-economic strata of society for a long time inhabited that space. Basically, the servants of, of, of the colonial houses had uh, rooftop rooms there, and that's where they slept. So like in this British downstairs, upstairs thing, in Mexico it was opposite, like the, 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 the people who worked uh, in the house lived in the upstairs uh, room. But those, those same spaces began to be occupied by young men and women who were university students in the 1920s because the middle class started so slowly rising. A lot of the old colonial structures of hierarchy and power started dissolving. Some of them, I mean, they're still there in so many ways, right? But um, anyway, the rooftops became a space for cultural experimentation, um, the first translation magazines, the first one actually was born, like experimental translation magazine was born in a rooftop with Gilberto Owen and, and a group, the group of poets to which he belonged, Salvador Novo, Villaurrutia. It was also the space for experimentation with drugs and with sexuality. A lot of the gay poets of, 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 those, of those times in a very conservative Mexico would have amazing rooftop parties that are really well documented in... <laughs> I mean, it sounds like now, kind of, no? But they were much better then, I think. Um, there's a very good biography of, of Salvador Novo called Statues of Salt, which documents exactly that Mexico, sort of the rooftop Mexico. And so well, I, I've always been obsessed with that layer, um, that liminar, uh, liminal space, because of its kind of... Um, dual visibility and invisibility, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a vantage point for the city, from where you can observe the city in a very peculiar way, but you're also kind of invisible from, to the people that are out in the street, but you're visible to the people that are on the other rooftops. No? So it's in a whole layer. Anyway, so I uh, arrived in New York City, and a, a kind of impulse was to go up and search for rooftops, which is something that I had always done in Mexico. And I ended up... Um, when I, when I knew that Owen had lived very near me, because I read it in a, in a letter that he wrote, I searched his, his, uh, his old apartment building and was very lucky enough to get in. I went up, 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 up to the rooftop, and I found in the rooftop this plant in a pot that was dead. And according to me, that plant looked very much like a plant that 
he describes that he had found. Um, it looks like a lamp. It looks like, yeah, the, the, the pot looks like a lamp, but which pot does not look like a lamp, I guess, right? It's all like an inverted lamp. But I saw it and I was like, this is something, no? this is a message, this is it, <laughs> this is a sign. And so I don't, norm I don't normally steal things, and I don't feel that I stole this plant, I feel that I just you took did it. take it. I took it yes. to take care of it, <laughs> to try to revive it, because I thought it was, no, it was some kind of symbol. And it lived with me in my desk for, for many the, the months that I remained in New York in that period of my life. And for a long time I thought I needed to write a novel that was like about Owen, but from the point of view of that plant. I'm really glad I didn't do that. <laughs> it was like I was reading the Ulipo, I think, probably. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, no perspective. And I didn't do that, but it, the presence of that plant was like a, almost like a religious reminder of a presence. And, mm -hmm. I, and I had also kind of in very in, like internalized um, Owen's, Owen's voice. You know, mm -hmm. I had read so much everything that he had written that, it, that he kind of lived with me in a ghostly way. So I very nat when I when I started writing, I very naturally like uh, could hear his voice. Yeah, that's, th that's very interesting because well, there's several things to pick up on there. But uh, the thing is, in 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 the novel, of course, the the voice of uh, Owen mm -hmm. sneaks into uh, it, it starts intercepting with the voice of the female narrator, and it grows. No, as a, it takes more and more space in the actual mm. uh, book, and his voice is so distinct from that of the female narrator. Yeah. He's got kind of like this masculine Super, swag, yeah. Uh, yeah. but self-deprecating. He would totally be me too yeah. nowadays, no? Yeah, <laughs> he, he would be, be uh, in hiding. Uh, yeah, 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 he would be hiding somewhere. But um, yeah, because in the novel, uh, when the narrator strands, she's, she's on the rooftop and she gets locked out. Locked out. Mm. Um, and uh, so, so she's stuck uh, during the night with uh, Gilberto Owen's plant. And um, and she wrote she writes something like yeah, or you write uh, something like that. Uh, this was perhaps the first time she she died, and that it was the first night she spent in the uh, presence of Gilberto Owen's ghosts. And um, and you have this phrase that I think is really beautiful. That um, I'd say I began that night to live as if inhabited by another possible life that wasn't mine, but one which simply by the use of imagination. I could give myself up to completely. Mm. Um, so this sense of, of she and him starting to mm. perhaps inhabit the same body. And and ghosts is a really strong theme of this work. Um, yeah. it, it, it floats through the entire book. Yeah. Um, what made you want to work like with ghosts as a narrative? Yeah, device. it's a it's a really good question, and I'm and I'm glad like you you point that particular um, passage out. I was I was saying earlier, you know, that that I was talking about our relationship to cities through literature, right, and how we often arrive to a city for the first time, but somehow know it because maybe we've been reading about it um, for for such a long time. And it, it's it's a similar thing with um, with with sort of the, the the depth of experience that we have of another person's soul uh, through reading, and I and. I, one of the first short stories that I that I read and was completely mesmerized by uh, was a story by by Borges, Jorge Luis Borges, who, uh, among his many brilliant stories, has one called Shakespeare's Memory. Um, I don't I don't know if, if any of you have read it or recall it, but it's a it's a it's a perfect little story about uh, a man who is a Shakespeare scholar um, and has been kind of following Shakespeare and, and, and trying to find un, un, unknown manuscripts and, and, um, and anyone anyway, has been researching Shakespeare for his whole life. And one day he is in a bar and some guy walks in and offers him uh, a ring which would then give him Shakespeare's memory. Very Borgesian, like a kind of fairy tale fantasy, but but also like he's starting to build up like a more like a philosophical metaphor of something that he's going to explore. So the guy accepts the ring, so he accepts Shakespeare's memory, and the rest of the 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 story is is him slowly being inhabited by Shakespeare's memory, not by a memory of Shakespeare, but by Shakespeare's memory. And I won't tell you too much because I might spoil 
the the story for you but but that that story works i think and it's been read like that before uh by by another writer called piglia i don't know if he's translated to norwegian ricardo piglia he that 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 he, he piglia has a brilliant essay about that that story where he says that that story is precisely like an an allegory of how literature works right how we are like haunted by another person's memory when we come into contact with their mind in a profound way when we like read them in a way that that is you know, the, the, when when something produces that kind of rapture that literature can and, and often does do and what happens to our own imagination when it's when it's kind of flooded by the waters of another person's imagination so i i really love that story and i love that that interpretation of the story so i was also trying to explore um ghostliness in that way like most more than ghostliness because i do explore ghostliness in other ways and we can talk about those but more than that it's about like things that haunt you somehow mm. but uh, being uh, haunting as in like being inhabited right being inhabited by another presence um you want me to talk about ghosts also or <laughs> I, just, I, I just like uh, <laughs> i can't help myself to shoot in there's this wonderful artwork i don't know if the, you know the british artist emma k <laughs> i don't she, uh, she's got a artwork that's called the shakespeare from memory oh, wow. where she's um she's written all of shakespeare's work from her memory, just like sitting down at the typewriter, and trying but like rewritten in her version. Uh, yeah, just paraphrasing uh, like what she remembers wow. from like school. And very like <laughs> Romeo and Juliet is like this long, and as you like it, it's like <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. A tweet, a tweet. So that's, it, 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 it's, it's not quite parallel to what you're talking about, but it's how like, culture memory forms yeah, yeah, yeah. and and like it sounds. What you're saying sounds almost more like another uh, story by Borges called Pierre Menard, mm. which is more well known. Which is a, a story about Pierre Menard, who's a translator or a transcriptor. I don't remember what he is, and he rewrites the Quixote uh, verbatim from beginning mm. to end. But but argues that it is a completely different book no? mm. than because it's written 200 years later. No? Mm. Exactly the same things happen, same par same character, same everything. But it's a completely different book mm. 200 years later. No? There's a Borgi story for everything. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it goes uh, well. Well, the way I, I read them is, is there. You also use them as, as this narrative device to to to, to like uh, weave together uh, different. Uh, levels temporal uh, and also geographical because yeah. the the geographical spaces of the novel also seem to they they, they start to intersect and overlap and uh, and you've also used uh, the subway as uh, uh, one of the routes to to uh, yeah. to make things cross hmm. i know if if this is like this is um i guess it's, it's a question about form how hmm. we, how you how you think about form and how how to how you structure uh, yeah. this uh, this story that you're writing? I'm I'm kind of obsessive with form, and that may may be apparent in, in my in my work in general. I mean, I I consider plot as a completely subsidiary thing to form, and I usually use plot just as as a as a, as a way to to reach the kind of forms that I want to experiment with. You know? And um, in this novel, I, I kept on having like I kept on asking myself and, and drawing diagrams of like what am I what am I doing here? You know, what what is it that I'm play What kind of object am I playing with? And I think one of the recurrent um, images for me while writing the novel was that I was writing both like a horizontal a horizontal story and a vertical story mm. um, that kind of intersect and and that was a very very urban um, image for me because it, it it had to do with with the way that New York City and many other cities, uh, modern cities, became and became to be set up, which had a, a, like an underground dimension uh, where where trains and people were constantly moving, sort of in this horizontal horizontal plane, um, but where lives also happened in in these sort of buildings that go go upwards no? and the the for me that the the subway was like a an almost like a recess in time no a, a way to 
to sort of enter the, the unconscious of the city and, and think about like the, the many lives that, that, that happened uh, above it, right? I mean, I was, I guess, also following a very modernist, like the, in terms of you know, the Anglo-Saxon modernist, not the, not the Latin American modernist, but the Anglo-Saxon modernists were also obsessed with, with viewpoints in, 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 in urban scaping, right? And one of the big discussions was about like how how is New York or how how are modern cities like that to be viewed? And there's a you know, a very um, important French writer whose name I've just completely forgotten right now, of course, uh, who who writes about the Chrysler Building, you know, the new Chrysler Building be, being like the the absolute f- um, viewpoint for the city. And I think Owen, without com- completely exploring his idea in in into Majep would would write about the subway and the subway's point of view of the city and i and i found that so much more interesting in terms of how we imagine verticality and so yeah i mean mm. i can go on for ages and get like really abstract and bore everyone to death with <laughs> well, i can tell you i mean if it's not that then maybe it's a web and whatever uh, i start sounding crazy if i go too too much into this <laughs> well, we haven't reached that point uh, but <laughs> i want to ask you about um a bit more about uh, Gilbert Owen because, of course, he is uh, he's a real character. Uh, he's real. He was a real poet living yeah. in, in a real uh, place in time. Um, but of course, uh, what you write is a is a fiction uh, mm-hmm. about his life. So, um, and and many of the characters you, you write about in your book has a, a real life counterpart, so to speak. So, I wonder how you view this back and forth motion between. Fiction and non-fiction. Yeah, in your work. Um, I mean, just to tell you, I'm I'm not at all interested in exploring autofiction or self-fiction as a as a genre in itself. I mean, it's not. I use a lot of my life and other people's lives. Sometimes pr- asking permission, sometimes not, um, as like material. No, the the, the material, like the very raw matter for the fiction that I write. But I'm not al- at all interested in the question of like the limit of like self and and fiction and so that's not something that I I I was exploring. It was something that led to many like interesting confusions and and problems while I was writing. Um, I at some point for example contacted Owen's son who turns out to be a very important um, person in the NASA in the mm. U.S. Um, <laughs> so I contacted him and I said I wrote this novel. I sent him the manuscript and I said I want you to read it and, and like approve it because I know he's your father and I, I don't want to to be to be disrespectful to to the memory of your father. And he wrote back saying, you know, I have no idea what the father my father's life was like in, in the period that you are talking about, but I don't believe that it was too different. So yeah, go ahead. And what was funny was that he then sent me Owen's poems uh, that he had translated into English. The whole novel is obsessed with about how to translate Owen's poems from Spanish into English, and the the, the narrator talks about that obsession. That she, and all of a sudden, the son sends me his own translations of his father's poems and asks me, can I help him get an editor? So I was like, oh my God, I'm living my <laughs> fiction. No, it happens to me. <laughs> and, I, and I did for a while. I did help him seek out a, an editor and no, no one. If, if, if anyone in Norway wants to publish him, I'm sure that <laughs> his son would be very happy. Um, he is a very interesting poem, poet. But then other, other, other less kind of beautiful things also like there's one poet that I that uh, that appears in the novel as a character. Well, there's many all, all the characters in Owen's world are poets that exist. It's like Garcia Garcia Lorca, for example, uh, or T. S. Eliot or Ezra Pound. And then one particular poet whose name is um, uh, Sukovsky, Louis Sukovsky. And I was writing this novel in Spanish. I never thought it would get translated to any language. It was my first novel. Uh, I didn't even know if it was going to get published, so I was very f- free to mm. write whatever I wanted to, and I had no idea about copyright laws and all of those things. And so the original in Spanish included a lot of poems by Sukovsky, and that I intervened and like rewrit, like I, I rewrit them um, without rewrote them, sorry, without any kind of scruple. 
And anyway, when I got an English editor, they were like, you might have some problems here with copyright, but also with just uh, using like real characters. So uh, I started doing some research and I found this letter online written by Sukovsky's son, basically threatening anyone who dared quote his father or use his work to death. No, or not before, really, before anyone had tried, just like warning? Warning, don't, like, even, don't try. even try yeah. to quote my father. Uh, if you want to quote him and ask for permission, I'll charge you a lot of money. And if, uh, if you do it without my permission, I'm going like, to basically unleash my lawyers on you, so beware. And I had already published it in Spanish, so I, I was really freaked out. Um, and so what I did was I changed the... That's the only poet whose name is not real. In English, he is called Zvorsky, so Joshua Zvorsky instead of Louis Sukovsky, quite like, <laughs> bleh, not, not very imaginative. And I rewrote with my trans English translator the poems, the original poems, I, like we rewrote them so that they phonetically sounded the same or almost the same. They had the same meter, the same internal rhymes, the same uh, patterns, even just the same alliterations but that weren't the actual poems. Mm. No. So that was a kind of interesting experiment with the translator. That how, do, how do we reinvent a character and use his poetry without... Um, it's like uh, when uh, like um, Mercedes wants to use an Arcade Fire song or some popular song, but Arcade Fire won't let them, so they just make uh, Arcade Fire sounding. Okay, but I'm not Mercedes, yeah. no. Like <laughs> for the good and the bad. <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. Um, they stole my idea. I think. <laughs> um, so um, you have a you have a PhD in comparative literature from Columbia University. So uh, I guess it's safe to say you're fairly uh, well read. And and um, there's a lot of like obviously uh, speaking now. There's so much literature into woven into uh, your work uh, into faces in the crowd. Um, how do you um, how do you view the, like this intertextuality? Is it is just something that mm. is is that uh, like the natural mode for you to work in? Is it mm. something you do you plot your position into this? Mm. No, I don't plot at all. Never, never, because the only thing that sits me down every day to write is the f like a feeling of not knowing what's going to happen. No, it's like. Going into a into a journey, uh, starting a, an affair, relationship with some like it's that kind of <gasps> vertigo that sits me down. And for example, I I write in English and in Spanish, and um, my last novel, my latest, I hope not my last, but my latest novel I wrote in English. Uh, it's called Lost Children Archive. It's just I just finished really. And uh, my Mexican editors are really upset because I'm writing in the language of the empire. No? Mm. Like, how dare you, like, betray your mother, Mexico, the original Guadalupe, and write in the language of the empire. And so they, they really try to convince me for a long time that I should rewrite that novel in Spanish. And I actually did try. Um, but it was, it's insanely boring to write the same book twice. Mm. It's, I mean, it's just not, not like... A no-brainer. You really, you can't. You, even though the journey of rewriting it in another language might have something interesting in it, like, it's just impossible. Um, so no, I don't plot at all. And about just to answer your question about intertextuality, I like books that take me to other books. I like reading a book that makes me curious about another author that's not the one I'm reading. So I guess I simply try to write books that point readers to other to other writers hmm. too. Who are those writers for you? What, uh, who are mm. the most in important writers uh, for you? I guess they change. They change. They change from book to book, and they change from moment of. Um, you're asking me what my favorite writers are. That's the <laughs> that's the most difficult <laughs> question to answer. <laughs> who I mean, I think that like the uh, that are alive right now, for example, that 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 may be more interesting. The the best alive poet I think is is Anne Carson. Mm. I adore her work. She's wonderful. She's really, really wonderful. <laughs> She's calling. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I and I and I think that Laszlo Krasnarkai is perhaps the there, you know, with Kafka, with with very few, you know, and he's he's still alive. He's he's such a he's such a difficult writer to read in physical ways. 
uh, like I remember the first time I read him, his his sentences are really long. Sometimes repeat his name just in case. Uh, but I pronounce it really badly, so it doesn't. <laughs> Laszlo Krasnorkai. Just like we do. Or Krasnorkai. Yeah, that, 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 that's how I would say. And it's impossible yeah. to spell. It has Zs and Zs and Zs mm. and whatever. Um, but his sentences are very, very long. Sometimes pages and pages long. You really have to... I felt that my eye muscles were like training. They like, were like mm. activated in a way that they had never been before. Just trying to like finish a sentence or, 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 not, or not lose it. You know? So it's quite an experience of reading. It's a physical experience. It's really lovely. So it's two enough. <laughs> no, that's fine. You would. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, would you like to like is, is, like since you're here and I, I'm sure there's a lot of people in the audience who wish they uh, read more Latin American fiction. Some from this influx of or this. There's a lot of focus in 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 the U.S. Uh, mm -hmm. as you say, more focus on like the young <coughs> Latin American uh, Mexican uh, writers. Anyone you want to recommend? Um, I, I, I love everything that Samantha Shreblin writes. And mm. I think she was very recently published here. She was. Uh, last yeah. year, mm. Fever Dream was published. Mm. And I guess a new one. And I don't know if her stories are published here. Birds in the Mouth. That's one, one of the, my favorite books, recent books. And another one, even better, called Seven Empty Houses. So she's, she's an amazing writer all around. But her short stories are, are just something beyond... Um, and I really recommend those. Seven, seven empty houses. It's um, duly noted. Duly um, noted. <laughs> so y um, you mentioned your second novel, Story of My Teeth. Uh, teeth. Um, wonderful book. Uh, completely different uh, mm. in many respects mm. from Faces in the Crowd. And it's it's a it is actually what it says. It's a story of a man's teeth, uh, mm. written in six installments. Um, but one of the things it, it, it really dwells on is, is, is the power of, of stories. Mm. Uh, and I guess, uh, to me, it, it also connects to Faces in the Crowd, which is so deeply rooted in this act of writing. You know, the act yeah. of writing is such an... Of writing your own story is mm. such an important part of, of Faces in the Crowd. But I don't know if, if you see that link or if that's... I do, definitely. I mean, it's a very they're very different novels. And just as with Faces in the Crowd, when I was writing it, I had no idea when I was writing The Story of My Teeth that it was going to be a, a book because it was actually like a, it was a commission. Um, there, there's a very, there's a, there's an art collection in Mexico called the Humex Collection. And it's one of the biggest collections in, in Latin America, maybe, of contemporary art. And what is kind of funny about it is that it's funded by a juice factory um, called Humex, which means Mexican juice Humex. Um, so Mexico has a lot of, yeah, I mean, there's some bizarre similarities with Norway, but I actually, I won't go in them <laughs> into them right now. But so who makes this like Mexican Jews funds culture and for funds has this big, uh, collection of art. And one day a curator asked me, would I document in a fiction, possibly fictional way, the process by which they were putting together an exhibition in the gallery. And just physically speaking, this gallery and this uh, factory were in, in, in a kind of wasteland uh, uh, near Mexico City called Ecatepec. Wasteland, I say, because it's, it's a very industrial landscape where, where like really like savage sa capitalism has really taken over. People live in very bad conditions, but there's all these factories and things. And there was this factory, the juice factory and the gallery. And so he wanted me to, he and she, there were two, two, uh, two creators, wanted me to write about the process of them putting together this exhibition. And I said, well, how boring. No. And they wanted me to write a blog about it. And I was like, no, I don't do blogs. Like I, I had a, a, what were they called? Not Pokemon, but uh, ta Tamagotchis. I had like Tamagotchi when I was like 10 and it died <laughs> again and again. <laughs> so I was like, I, I never did blogs. And so... Um, <laughs> They said, okay, fine, but what would you want to do then? And I said, well, I'm really interested in, in exploring the relationship between the factory and this gallery. Like, what, like what's the actual dated, like, how, how, how does the link actually uh, get done? So I, I suggested to write a story in installments, in weekly installments, for the factory workers. Um, a story that would prompt them to speak about 
their relationship to the gallery and how, what they thought of the gallery. And so that's what I did. A, a group of 12 workers volunteered for the experiment, 12 factory workers, and I sent them weekly installments and they would read them out loud every Wednesday and then they would comment them, they would always criticize them fiercely and then they would tell stories. Um, and all of that was recorded in an audio and sent back to me in New York and I would hear it and then start making notes for like the next installment. And we did this for several months until there was this thing, <laughs> which eventually with a lot of uh, work and editing became the story of my teeth. But it's a, it's a story that, that somehow allegorically speaks about the problem of value of objects. How does an object acquire the value that it has, because right? It, it tells the story of an auctioneer who, who can sell off anything just by giving it the, like the, the proper the story. added value, yeah, the, the added, added value, value of a narrative mm. tissue. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, we're uh, nearing. Uh, we focus in on on an ending soon, but I, I, I wanted just quickly, briefly to to touch upon um, this book of yours that's not yet published. Uh, published, it will come next year in, in February next year in yeah. English yeah. and I think it will come in Norwegian uh, the same like next year as well uh, it's called Lost uh, Children Archive and also uh, by what I can gather a, a very different book from from uh, from your debut and from also from mm. Story of My Teeth and uh, yet it is concerned with the echoes of the past and how it how it resonates with the present in a in a sense uh, it's you know what i was thinking the 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 narrator of um lost children archive is kind of like a, an older uh version of the narrator here somehow somehow and the two kids there's two kids in that i don't have two kids i just so you know <laughs> but there are two kids in my novels <laughs> and um and the 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 two kids here who are one just born and the other i think five or six in this novel in the in in lost children archive they are 10 and 5 so it's like 5 mm. years have passed somehow but it's not i mean it's actually not it's a completely different family different story but there is a kind of thread that ties the two books even though they're so different in mm. their in the in the themes that they explore and and, and what uh, like this is the, the lost children archive is set against this um, well, horrifying events that uh, unraveled, it's been unraveling in the U.S. with uh, children uh, separated from the family and children. Well, again, and yes and no, yeah. no. I wrote this a lot before, many, many, many. I mean, years before I started writing this, years before fam the family separation events that you probably read about earlier this summer. Um, but in a way, it foreshadowed a lot of what is happening. I mean, it's a story about, it's a story that tells the, the journey of a family, um, a family that is documented, not, not an undocumented family, that travels in a kind of road trip from in their car from New York to Arizona. And that the, the, the father is, is a soundscape artist. He's, sound, he's doc documenting, he's making a sound documentary of certain um, uh, landscapes and, and uh, Apache peoples. So that's why the, the, the family is traveling to Arizona. But at the same time, the, crisis, the immigration crisis is erupting at the border and they constantly listen to the radio in the car. And the children, the two children, the, the boy and the girl in the back seat, somehow start reenacting you know, the stories that they hear about Apaches and the radio stories, and they kind of reenact the games in, a, in, in these kind of bizarre ver verbal games in the back seat. And at the same time, so it's that voice, there's a voice of the boy um, who also tells a part of the story. And then there's another thread, which is the story of seven kids traveling alone on a train toward which possibly could be the US. No? So mm. it's the story of seven, seven lost children, basically, traveling on a train. And the, the stories weave together somehow. Mm. Um, of course, you've um, worked extensively with themes of, of, of children and refugees um, as an essayist and as a non-fiction writer. And um, yeah, we can you'll talk even more about this uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, but I wanted to ask you whether uh, it's a it's a kind of a heavy loaded question, but um, 
how the age of Trump and, and how the current uh, moment in American politics, you live in New York uh, City, how has that changed your mm. view uh, as your profession uh, as an author? Mm. It's a really good question and really difficult to answer. I mean, I think, for example, that um, the, the, the way the world is now has made me more outwardly political in my work. Um, and that's difficult for a novelist because politicizing, trying, trying to use a novel as a vessel for your political frustrations is a, is a very... It's a very dangerous thing for fiction because uh, or the fiction that I like is one that that threads more with more nuance um, so for example I had to stop writing the novel for a period because I was so full of political rage that I was using the novel just as a space to sh sort of shout and it was, it was horrible writing terrible And I and I abandoned it for a while, and I wrote this essay that I'm going to talk about tomorrow, which documents very factually what happened in the border and in the in in, in the immigration courts during those those ye that year really of mm. uh, of of crisis. This crisis goes on really, um, but m more more than that, I mean, it, it what's happening in the U.S. is very worrying, and it's not going to end when. Trump leaves, and the the state of like um, of kind of paranoia that minorities are now forced to live in is is something that really I think is breaking a lot of us, and and it's like a every day is a struggle not to break, um, and that's exhausting as well. No, like I wrote um like a really a not not very contentious piece in the New York Times at the beginning of the summer about a group of Hispanic children who are translating the Quixote, they're children, but they have this crazy, amazing mentor. And with him, they are translating the Quixote from Spanish to English, the kids from seven to 15. Mm. Except in their version, the Quixote is not an old Spanish guy, but a group of Mexican immigrant kids in New York. No? Uh, so it's a really cool version translation of the Quixote. And I, I've been close to the project and supporting them in, in, in different ways. Um, And I wrote this piece about them, um, just t telling sort of the story of the kids and what they do. And I started getting uh, really brutal threat emails um, in my, my university uh, account. My, my, my email address is public because I'm a teacher, so it, it has to be public. And so some threats were like more bureaucratic about like, oh, I'm sure that your white students are not so happy with like your... Uh, rage towards America. It's really not not a contentious piece. So I wonder, like, with the pieces that I'm going to be writing, <laughs> what will happen? And some of the threats were more serious. There were more de death threats and violent threats, to the point where the dean of my university, because uh, I forwarded him all the emails, said, "You know, Valeria, when you come back in September, we have to talk. We have to put in motion a security protocol for you to be on campus." And I was like, "What? Crazy?" Uh, yeah, yeah, you have to teach, and I think this is for your safety. You have to teach in a limited access classroom. We want to protect you. It's, and you have to follow, like, a pro I don't know what the protocol is going to be, if I have to check in with public safety every time, whatever. And I, and I, I remembered hanging up from that phone conversation and thinking, like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to participate in this lunacy. I mean, it's, yes, the threat of those, you know, of the radical white supremacy, But I'm not. I'm not even scared. I don't. Those, those guys don't do anything. They just. They just shout. They just troll. They just. And nevertheless, we all kind of participate in the madness that that creates. And I wonder. I mean, I wonder in my case, and I wonder in in the case of so many people, how that kind of thing slowly chips away at your psyche. You know? mm. If you have to, if me and colleagues in similar situations as me have to teach in a secure, secure access classroom, how do we connect to the students? How do we like connect to our material? How do we? So I mean, uh, it is it is a really dark time. There's no there's no need to hide it, but it's just about like yeah, yeah. I mean, either running away <laughs> to another country, or just staying and, and and knowing how to fight productively. Mm. And 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 the nuances that are, that's possible to to express in art. Uh, yeah, should be yeah, an an important part of. Um, 
Thank you very much. Thank you very for much. For a wonderful conversation. Yeah. Um, and um, you'll stay on uh, to sign a few books if uh, anyone is sure. uh, interested in that. And once again, uh, Valeria will be here tomorrow night as well, uh, together with the uh, wonderful Difa Mohammed and uh, Tiji Cole. And um, thank you very much for uh, nice Thank you, guys. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.